Father God, Lord, when we look around our world today, we see a, a real mess. So much is out of control, so much is out of our control. So much of what we had always seen as just normal and always there is turned on, on its head and sometimes we're left to wonder, Lord, what's next? Father, thank you that we don't have to serve, solve the world's problems. Father, I thank you that we don't have to figure out the answers to questions that are bigger than we are. Father, I'm thankful that we can be confident and know that this world and our lives are safely in your care. They're in your hand. And you've seen everything throughout all of time and you can handle it. And we can trust you to do that. Father, you're bigger than we could ever imagine you are. You're stronger than we can ever fully appreciate. And you love us with a love that's deeper than we'll ever be able to comprehend. Help us, Lord, to, in a small way, begin be able to reproduce that for those that we share this life with. And this morning, Lord, as we open your word, I just pray you would open our hearts to what it is you have to say to us, that you would challenge us, that you would motivate us, that you would change us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you're with us last week, you know that we closed uh, the last part of our sermon with this powerful statement at the end of Philippians, the first chapter. And, and, and it kind of summarizes the beginning or opening remarks of the Apostle Paul to the church in Philippi. You, you remember that, of course, the Apostle Paul is imprisoned. Um, he, is, he is completely powerless. He is out of control of his situation. He is a, he is a, a criminal, according to the law. And so uh, everything that he would have liked to have done or in the way that he would have liked to have done, all that was out of his control. And yet Paul somehow seems to be okay with this. He, he writes in the, in the first part of Philippians, the first chapter, and he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. In other words, he's just saying there that, you know, what I would like to do is, is really finish up the story of this life. I, I would like to, to, to write my final chapter and go be with the Lord. And if you could look at the Apostle Paul's life, you might be able to understand that. The things that the Apostle Paul had given physically and emotionally for the cause of Christ are just absolutely staggering. On one occasion, Paul was, his, his apostleship was kind of questioned by some others who were seeking their own power. And Paul just does a quick rundown of the things that he had gone through for the cause of Christ. And the list is staggering. There's things that he lists there that we don't even have a corresponding Bible story for. Uh, Paul had lived a life or four lifetimes of complete service to God. And I just imagine at this point, as an older man, now a prisoner, feeling the aches and pains of the multiple stonings and the imprisonments and the multiple beatings that he had gone through, the effects of the various shipwrecks, that the Apostle Paul came to the conclusion that maybe all of us will at some point if the Lord allows us to live long enough. You know, it would be good if I could just go home. 
Go to my eternal rest and be with the Father. But Paul doesn't stop there. He says, for me to live is Christ, but for me to die is gain. For me to live is to do what Christ has put me in this world to do, to share in the mission that I've been given, to give of the time and the talents and the abilities that I have to give to others who need it. And if that's why God wants me here, then so be it. I will serve, I will live, I will give to the absolute best of my ability. But then Paul switches gears in around verse 27, and he writes to the church there a message that I think is a powerful message for us today as well. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Philippians, the first chapter. We're going to pick up in verse 27, then we're going to move to Philippians 2. So let me just catch us up. He says, only, and he's obviously been talking about all kinds of other stuff ahead of this, only let the manner of your life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I might hear that you are standing firm, one in spirit, one in mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Notice what Paul does right here. He says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Sometimes we, we forget that that word gospel simply means the good news. And Paul says, I, I want you to know that you have an opportunity to live your life up to the standard of the good news of Jesus Christ. In other words, you think about Jesus and you think about all that he did and how he lived and his character and his personality. I want you to live up to that. I want you to do your best to live a life that's worthy of that call and that sacrifice. Now, man, I mean, First of all, guys, without jumping into this too deep, there's no way that we can ever do that, right? I mean, to live a life worthy of what we are not worthy of is absolutely impossible. But then Paul, Paul says, this is what that looks like. What I mean is, practically, that I can hear that you are striving or standing firm in the Spirit. And I want you to notice the word, use of the word one right here. One, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, not frightened in anything by your opponents. That you are standing firm in one spirit and with one mind, striving side by side for the cause that we've been called for. That's what Paul wanted to see, what Paul was hoping to see out of the church in Philippi. And I'm guessing, and I'm guessing here, but I think that they probably struggled a lot like the rest of us with this idea of unity. How do we all get on the same page? How do we all push in the same direction? And certainly, if you look around our world today, this probably has been the most ununified period in American history that I've lived. There's, 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 there's strivings and there's frustrations in so many different places, not just online, but in, in various cities, people against people, idea against idea. We live in a very broken and fractured time, and I think that's what makes this lesson in Philippians 2 so very powerful. Now, we might not be able to solve all the world's problems. In fact, I can guarantee you that we cannot solve all the world's problems. But Paul gives us a formula for how to live in unity or harmony with the other people that we share life with, and especially with those who are part of the family of faith. And this is practical advice, not just for those of us who are working together in a church family to maintain the unity of what we call the family of God or the church, but it's also practical advice on how to have unity in the workplace, how to have unity in your homes, because these, these basic tenets that Paul is about to explain to the church in Philippi are the, are the seeds that grow into unity in the future. And so I want you just to, to notice here as we read through Philippians 2, 
that, that Paul kind of gives us that formula. Let's just read together. Philippians 2, verse 1. I'm just going to pass over it real quick, and then we're going to spend our remaining time kind of breaking this down into three particular sections. Philippians 2, verse 1, he says, So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affliction and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord with one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not at his own interests, but also at the interests of others, having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. The passage that I've just read to you might be the most difficult passage to actually live out in the entirety of the New Testament. There's other things that are more challenging on the surface and you read them and you're like, whoa, you know, like passages about forgiveness or passages about changing our lifestyle. But this passage is so all-encompassing that when you start to really think about it, it becomes staggering. Paul here is, is really talking about three main areas or three main things that motivate us and push us to become people who love unity. And, and you know, you've all met people that are, that are kind of unity breakers, right? Divisive people. And the Bible's very, very clear about that. The, the New Testament is a powerful, powerful stand on unity. In fact, it says, have nothing to do with a divisive person because that attitude just seems to spread. So how is it that we can make certain that we have the kind of attitude that draws people together? How do we have the kinds of attitudes that build up the church and build up people, not tear people down? Well, Paul tells us that it breaks down into three kind of rough areas. He starts off and he says, I wanna, I wanna challenge your motivation. What is it that motivates you to have that spirit of unity? Truth is, that you guys know all this, right? But I'm gonna remind you this morning that unity that getting along with one another takes work. It's not easy, right? And so what is it that motivates you to do that? Just because you want people to like you or appreciate you or is there something deeper? The second thing is, is, is it that Paul breaks this down and says there's a certain nature, a certain characteristic, a certain package of characteristics in the life and in the heart of somebody that just naturally helps them to become a person that has joy and has unity as a part of who they are. And the third thing is, Paul says that there's, that there's two attitudes that we've got to jettison, and there's two attitudes that we've got to cultivate in our life to become the kind of person that really answers Paul's plea, but even greater, answers Jesus' plea for unity. So let's jump into that this morning. Let's take a look at, at these three characteristics. And we're going to start off with Paul's list that he starts off at the beginning with. The so ifs. All right? and, and this really kind of encompasses our motivation. What is it that motivates us to do what it is that God's called us to do? Because a lot of things God's called us to do are difficult, right? So you notice what he says here in verse number 12. Paul just kind of piles the benefits of Christianity one on top of another. He said, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, so if there's any comfort from love, so if there's any participation in the Spirit, so if there's any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, 
having the same love, being full accord of one mind. Paul lists really the five biggest areas, and I think these were just intuitive for him, they're really intuitive for us as well, the five huge benefits that happen when you're a part of, of the family of God, when you're in a faith family like, uh, like the church here. Because each of these things are, well, we can't really imagine life without them. Let's just take a look at them really quickly and break them down as we go. The first one he says is, is any encouragement in Christ. Can you guys imagine what the world might be like if we didn't have Christ in Christianity? It's hard for us to even imagine. Because so much of who we are and what we value and what we champion as a culture, even today in America, has as its root our Christian heritage. Now, we, we try to push back from that. We, we try to kind of estrange ourselves from, from the founding fathers and from some of their premises. And let me tell you, the founding fathers were not perfect guys, and they had huge character flaws. We all know that. But they sat apart. They set, they set out to create a country that was founded on Christian principles. And even if the guys who wrote it were flawed, the principles that they built the country on were not because they came from the Word of God. You know, a lot of the things that we take for granted as Americans, uh, American, the American government feeds a great number of people around the world. It's something that's been disrupted with the whole COVID thing. And so there's a lot of people that are actually in jeopardy with food outside of the borders of our country simply because our feeding programs didn't continue for a while. We feed a lot of people. We have an idea in this country that no one should be left without the basics of health care and, and, and the needs for their life. Even if they've, even if they've got themselves in a, in a pickle, there's a safety net to catch us. Guys, I don't know if we realize that those concepts are not just natural human concepts. You look through history in, in the past, countries didn't do those kinds of things. If you didn't have the money, you didn't eat. If you didn't have the money, they didn't care for your health. Look at the time of Jesus. Jesus describes in the rich man and Lazarus, a man who was left at the gate of a rich man. He was covered in sores. He was dying of some disease and the rich man did not even worry himself about it. That's usual. The things that we do in this country, guys, that's part of our heritage. Paul said, hey, if you've, if you've received any encouragement from Christ, and we all have, he said, if you've any, received any comfort from love, can you imagine a world without love? Can you imagine the kind of people we would live with if no one loved anybody? Now, we don't love perfectly like we should, but there's a lot of love in the world. Even in the midst of difficult seasons, you'll find people that step out of their comfort zone and do acts of kindness just because they care, because they love. Guys, we didn't come up with the concept of love on our own. <laughs> Human beings, by and large, naturally are not loving people. We're rather hateful people. But the Bible tells us in this we know love, that Christ died for us. God demonstrated what love looked like so that we could emulate that. Paul said, hey, if you've been encouraged by Christ, and we all have, if you have any comfort from love, and we've all experienced that, if you've enjoyed the participation in the Spirit. This is something that, that is, a, is a real challenge point for me because I think that we, we, we tend to try to kind of not act like the Holy Spirit exists. We kind of try to put him on the shelf because other people have taken the Holy Spirit and they've abused him and they've they tried to use that concept for all kinds of foolishness. But guys, we have been given as Christians an opportunity that is unprecedented. 
When we look at Acts, the second chapter, and it talks about, talks about being buried in the waters of baptism and rising to walk in new life, and you will receive what? The gift of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of the living God comes in and dwells us. Jesus was so excited about this. He said, it's good that I leave. And the disciples were like, it's not good. And a lot of us would say, boy, if Jesus, if you were just in the world today, things would be so much better. If you would just show up again. But Jesus was so excited about the Spirit. He said, the best thing that ever happens is I leave. Then the Helper comes. And sometimes we, we tend to put that Holy Spirit to the side rather than letting Him lead and guide in our lives. And shame on us. And we'll talk about that in another sermon because I could get off and then we wouldn't get done this morning. But we have enjoyed the participation in the Spirit. It's that thing that marks us and God looks at us and says, that's my kid. Why? Because my Spirit is within them, the Scripture says. And then he, he mentions a couple other things. Affection. Just that, that whole feeling of being accepted, of belonging. That's unique in the world, guys. And there's a lot of people today that would just love to have one place where they belong. Some of us who have been Christians, we have a lot of places that we belong. One of the things that I have always marveled about is, is the, the quality of friendships that I've enjoyed in the church. There's guys that I knew I grew up with, and we're good friends, and we enjoy that. But then there's people that I grew up with in church, people that I grew up with and went to camp with, and guys I went to Bible college with, and there's just a connection there that's deeper. It's different. Paul finishes up by saying, if you have any sympathy, if you have a soft heart... If you have a soft heart, then allow that to motivate you. Guys, when you look through that list, that's a powerful, powerful list. Christ has done more for us than we can ever do. The love of God is absolutely boundless and amazing. The Holy Spirit is a part of each and every day for all of us. We have relationships that are deep and strong. We have a soft heart because he was willing to work in us. And Paul said, keep that in mind because that is your motivation to do the hard work that's coming next. Because the second thing Paul says is that we can't just like the idea of unity. We can't just enjoy the idea of being one together in Christ, but there's certain things that we've just got to do. Certain things that, that are just in our nature or need to become a part of our nature. So he said, do this. Verse number two, complete my joy by being, and he lists three things right here. These are the three things that would make the Apostle Paul happy. You know, I don't know if your parents ever ask you that, that question. My mom and dad asked me that rhetorical question all the time. You know what would make me happy, Jason? <laughs> and I always knew it was whatever my mom wanted me to do right there, you know. It was a little guilt trip. The Apostle Paul lays a guilt trip on us right here, okay? And then he says, you know what would make me happy? And so this is a really good time for us to listen. Because he lists three things right here. He said, have the same mind, have the same love, and being full accord of one mind. Let's break these down really quickly because um, in, in, in the beginning, you might think, well, the Apostle Paul's a little confused right here. It seems like he mentions two things or one thing twice, and he does. I don't think he got confused like I might have in the middle of a sermon and think and repeat a main division twice. He he recognizes something. Being of the same mind, having a like-minded approach is absolutely essential. A lot of us are, are looking at the world kind of today and, and we have to navigate that. And we're raising up kids to, to go out into this world and we're asking ourselves, what are, the, 
What are the things that we're really challenged about today? And part of that is, is that we just don't have the same mind about the world anymore. There was a time in this country where we made a lot of mistakes, but we had a same mindset. We all came from a same kind of point of view that, that this is the word of God and we might not want to live by it, but we understand that these were, some, these were some characteristics, some principles that our culture and our systems were built on. And Paul recognizes that if we're going to actually have unity, if we're all going to be together, we've got to figure out one path, one approach. There's a myth in our world today that you can have a whole lot of paths and still have unity. But you and I both know that it just doesn't work like that. If you're going to go someplace on a particular trip, you, you've got to have a destination in mind, right? Everyone's got to get there. Otherwise, no one's going to show up if they don't know where they're going. And, and so that's what Paul's saying here. He said, I want you to think the same thing. Now, you might say, well, Jason, how in the world can you ever get everybody to think about the same, uh, the same thing? And I... It's difficult, right? Because we all have a different perspective. You guys know I grew up up north. And uh, if, if tomorrow <laughs> there, there was a, a, a snowstorm and dropped a foot of snow in Louisiana, hey, it's 2020, guys, it could happen. All right, I'm just saying. Um, if there was a foot of snow that happened, I would get up in the morning and be like, man, I'm going to have to go out to go to work, right? And uh, because I grew up in a place where it snows a foot pretty often, and, and you still have to go to work. You get in, you shift in full drive, you drive, you slow down a little bit at stop signs, you learn how to work the anti-lock brakes. But most of you guys, you grew up down here, you guys don't see snow a foot thick. You would be like, today I'm staying home, right? Something is very wrong with the world. And uh, it's just a perspective. We come at life from a different perspective sometimes. Our experiences, our backgrounds, our upbringing certainly shape how we look at the world. But we need a way to think in common. And that's where this little book has such amazing power. This church came from a movement of people. They called it a restoration movement. In many ways, the restoration movement's uh, something that happened in the late, well, the 19th and 20th centuries. But many of those restoration principles are still alive today. And there's one particular principle that I find to be so powerful. It's this concept that really kind of transformed how these people looked at the word of God because they, they saw the confusion in the world and they said, look, why can't we just be Christians only? We're not the only Christians, but we're Christians only. We, we don't want brands and attachments to our name. We, we would just want to be Christ followers. That's a beautiful concept if you ask me. And they said, how are we going to do this? And they had this little slogan. It's not in the Bible, but it's a very biblically based slogan. They said, we're going to speak where the Bible speaks. We will be silent where the Bible is silent, and in all things, we'll practice love. The Bible tells us certain things that just have to be that way. In fact, for instance, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's not a negotiable point, right? Jesus is the way, and Jesus said that he's the way. So there are certain things where we would speak. If the Bible says it, then we're going we're gonna to say that. This is what the Word of God says. This is God's plan for your life. But there's a lot of things the Bible is completely silent on. The style of building that you have, the kind of chairs you have, whether or not you have, have stained glass windows, whether or not you have certain kinds of music, right? Those things are all open because it's not really important in the grand scheme of things. And so the, the movement said, we're going to stand on the word of God where we need to, but we're going to be quiet. We're going to be silent where the Bible's silent. We don't need to speak 
where God hasn't spoken. But I like the last part where they said, in all things, we're gonna love. We're gonna love those who agree with us and we're gonna love those who don't agree with us. But we're gonna share what God has told us unashamed. Paul said, the second thing that in that list, he said, you want to make me happy, have the same mind and have the same love. Love one another. It's a theme of the Bible from one end to the other. In fact, Jesus summarized all the apostles, all the writings of the prophets and teachers in a simple phrase when he was asked, what's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. The second is like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor just like you love yourself. Care for your neighbor just like you care for yourself. And then Paul repeats himself, right? So he goes back again and he says, being of one mind. So being of the same mind, love, being of the same love, and then again, being of one mind. And guys, here's why I think he does that. Paul realizes that you cannot have unity if you can't agree on some things. One of the things that troubles me the most as a dad and now an old guy, I, I forgot how old I was in the first service. I figured it out. I'm 45. All right. Um, <clears throat> but uh, but uh, <laughs> one of the things that troubles me that I think we've lost in the last 30 years or so is the ability to have a conversation where we don't agree with one another, but we're still friends. Where we can disagree without hating one another. Well, we can come at something from a different point and say, this is really what I see in Scripture. Well, I think I see it this way. What is the intended meaning of the Scripture? Have a constructive conversation without it disintegrating into name-calling. Guys, that's who we're supposed to be. That's in our DNA as Christ followers. Jesus dealt with all kinds of foolishness. All right, let me look at the ministry of Jesus. Let me just say that Jesus had to deal with difficult situations every day and ignorant people constantly. And yet he always did it with grace and with speech that was perfectly on cue. And we can't do that, but we have a spirit within us that can help us do that. You notice in John, the 13th chapter, Jesus is finishing, literally nearing the end of his ministry here. And it's almost like Paul's question, you know what would make me happy? Jesus said, you know how I want people to look at you as my disciples? John 13, 35, you probably have this memorized, but if you don't, he said, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples. This was to be the, the moniker slapped across the chest of everybody who's a Christ follower. It wasn't supposed to be a particular brand name or a style of worship or a cover on a Bible. That was not what Jesus intended. He said, I want people to know you are my followers by this, if you love one another. Another one of the texts say, by the quality of the love you have for each other. Jesus wants the church, his followers, to be defined by the kind of care and love that we have, not just for each other in the church family, but for the world as a whole. And so, as we close, Paul said, hey, if you've gotten anything from Christianity, and we all have, you need to change the content of your attitude. Have one mind, have one love, have one mind. And then he says this, he said, I want you to change how you think. See, Paul knew that you can't really change how someone thinks until you help somebody to realize just how much they've been given. And once they've been given much, then they realize that there's a value into thinking a certain way. Now he says, I want you to change your attitude in life. Verses three and four, 
arguably the most difficult verses in the New Testament. He said, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you not just look at his own interests, but also at the interests of others. Paul starts off and he mentions two attitudes that we've got to get rid of. Two attitudes that both involve a self-centered attitude. We are called as Christians, and we looked at this last week, we're called not to be self-centered, but Christ-centered. But we, we constantly fight with self. Paul writes in Romans, the seventh chapter, and he says, I, the things I want to do, I do not do. The things I don't want to do, I do. What a wretched man am I. I am a mess. And the mess is because all of us struggle with this set of things. There's two things that Paul said, you've got to get rid of these. The desire to exalt yourself, ambition, selfish ambition, and the proper, improper esteem of yourself. In other words, just simply put, the desire to make yourself big. Look at me, look at me. And pride. We think that we're just a little bit better than we are. Do you know who I am? Do you know what I've done? <laughs> Paul said that we really should replace that attitude with two attitudes. The first one is humility. This is the most effective way to get rid of a big ego. It's to simply be humble. Guys, recognize that we're not all that. There's not a one of us in this room today that's all that. We're people who are broken. We're people who make mistakes. We're people who break things. We break relationships. We break, our, we break a lot of things personally in our life, right? We are not that great of people. We need a savior. The second one is learn to become selfless. We're born selfish, but we learn to become selfless. We become aware of our own defects. We get a clear view of our own problems, and also how to help other people. But we also learn how to put other people ahead of who we are. You know, sometimes it's hard for us to see through other people's outward conduct what's really going on behind the scenes. But in Romans, the 12th chapter, the Apostle Paul gives us a challenge that's worthy. He said, I want you to love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. He starts off and he says, I want you to think about the people around you like your brother, right? And I don't have siblings, so I'm a little bit of a deficit right here, but I think I understand this concept because you'll let your brother get by with something you might not let somebody else get by with. You love your brother even if he disappoints you, even if he does things that you don't really want him to do, even if he says things that you wish he hadn't said, you still love him. And when you're asked why, you say, because he's my brother. Love one another like a brother or a sister. And then he says, I want you to be competitive in your honor showing. <laughs> Outdo one another in showing honor. No, you first. No, you first. I mean, he said, I want you to, he knew men, right? He's like, men love to compete. I want you to go out there and I want you to be the most selfless person. I want you to compete at being the most selfish, selfless person. <laughs> Romans 15, Paul builds on what that means here. It really is 
what it looks like to become mature in Christ, to have the attitude that Christ had. And he says that. He said, we are, who are strong have the obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. And to not please ourselves, let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but it's written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. As Paul finishes in Philippians 2, picking up in verse 8, Paul reminds us of the ultimate example. Paul wasn't just pulling this stuff out of the air. Paul was literally condensing the life of Jesus Christ into a formula that all of us could emulate. Because he said this, and being found in human form, speaking of Jesus here, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Guys, I don't know if we stop to think about this, but Jesus didn't have to come here. He didn't have to suffer here. He didn't have to go through everything that people go through here. He was above that. He was the creator of this, and yet he became the creation. Not only did he become the creation, but he allowed the creation to destroy him in the most painful an embarrassing and demeaning of ways possible, crucifixion on a cross. Paul says, hey, humble yourself as Christ humbled himself. But then notice, Christ doesn't stay humbled. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed him uh, on him a name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, both in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of of God our Father. At the end, he said, look, Jesus maybe humbled himself and he allowed God to pick him up. Jesus talked about that in the parables, didn't he? But here's the beautiful thing about it. He said that God gave him a name that's above every name. Everyone will bow at the name of Jesus. Those on earth, those in heaven, those that are under the earth, probably talking about those who are in hell. Everybody is going to bow at the name of Jesus. But it's all for a reason. It's all for the glory of God. Every day that we suck up a statement that we could have said, every time we're on social media and we hit the backspace key, every time that we put up with other people's brokenness and hurt, every time we put other people ahead of ourselves, we are bringing glory to the one that put us ahead of him. We are following in the footsteps of Jesus Christ who was willing to trade heaven for you and me. We're doing exactly what we're called to do. Paul said, you want to make me happy? Most importantly, you want to make God happy. And live out Philippians, the second chapter, the first few verses. Some of the hardest stuff you'll ever come across. But some of the most important, especially in these days.